Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast presented by me, Adam Wagner. The podcast is very kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. If you're interested in studying law, visit Goldsmiths for its open day on Wednesday the 6th of November 2019, where you can meet their law academics and find out more about studying their law programme. Please do get in touch if you have comments or suggestions, adam at betterhumanpodcast.com or subscribe on Twitter, that's at behumanpodcast, that's the letter B. And you can also find us on Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And we are looking for 100 people to give just $5 a month, that's about £4, and which would support the podcast and make it sustainable at one podcast every two weeks. Today's guest is Shona Jolly QC. She's a barrister at Cloisters Chambers in London, specialising in equality, employment and human rights in both domestic and international courts. She's the chair of the Bar Human Rights Committee, and she advises national bodies and NGOs, particularly on equality and human rights issues. She represented Vote Leave whistleblower Shamir Sani at the Employment Tribunal, and she tweets as Woman in Havana. So before we get into the big issues about Brexit and human rights. I thought it'd be useful to start with, just on a really basic level, what is Brexit from a legal (laughs) perspective? Um, I think the best word to describe it is a disentanglement um, because, you know, we have been part of this legal order for 45 odd years. um, And when we joined it, we effectively accepted the effects of this legal order, which would change uh, the way we approach lots of fundamental aspects of our lives. So Brexit is a disentanglement of that myriad of laws and regulations and rules and organizations within which, and to some extent, the cooperation with which we've affected our relationships with our nearest neighbors. So the, the EU law works with treaties as, as a basic level. And how do they then end up in our, you know, take, having effect on our lives at, at a very local level? So our EU law, I mean, the fundamental base is the treaties. Um, which have developed and changed over the course of our membership. Uh, And then EU law runs with a system of directives uh, and regulations which um, have to be implemented in sovereign states, in in, in member states, um, so that there is direct effect of those laws effectively in our lives, in our daily working lives, in our relationships with consumer goods, in our relationship with the environment, in our relationship with our employers. Uh, And so it has this very direct impact, even if we can't see it every day. So if, for example, a directive on maternity leave was passed in the EU Parliament, and we voted on it, and we were were in it, how does that then filter down into my workplace? Well, through a system of laws that are made by the national parliament to implement the effects of that directive. So um, an easy way of looking at it, for example, um, are, are the working time regulations. You know, that's, those are a series of regulations which have a, an effect every single day on our rights to take breaks in our working day, on the number of hours we work in a week, um, on our entitlements to holiday pay, etc. And, and those are passed into national law 
um, as a result of the directive, which an EU directive, the Working Time Directive, which member states all had to uh, place into their national law, if you like, within a set period of time. So directives then find their way through national directives or through national, sorry, through national regulations or other forms of national laws, which then have to be implemented and take effect and precedence in domestic law of you know of the 27 28 states so so that working time um so that's the um, maximum number of hours that you can work in a week exactly and, and you're allowed to opt out but you have to you have to um overtly opt out is that right you have to overtly opt out so the, the, uh, in effect the system is in place to make sure people know which hours they're supposed to work and that they are if they are being required through an opt-out to work longer than 48 hours, um, that they are required to sign something to that effect, and so that everybody knows what the position is. It, it's intended to be voluntary. And, and what happens if the UK Parliament passes a law which is in opposition to that, and then somebody says, well, one minute, what about my EU rights? And they go to, they go to their local court and they say, well, this, is in con- this conflicts with the the EU directive, this law, this UK law con- conflicts with the directive. So for a, a good example would be where there is a provision in um, domestic legislation which is in conflict with um, either EU fundamental principles set out in the general principles or other aspects of EU law. Uh, and the courts are empowered to disapply the domestic legislation in a way um, that um, uh, is extremely powerful. It means that um, someone in the UK can go to their court, their local court, if they consider that a piece of UK legislation is in breach of EU law, uh, and they can ask for that to be disapplied. So the court and can, they can strike ask, down. So the court the law. can simply strike down that law, and there may well be remedies that are applicable to that individual, depending on the kind of law that's been breached. Okay, so that's part one of the roadmap. the The, the other bit is the specific rights and laws. So, sh- should we start with the the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights? What, what what's, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> So the EU Charter is a much vexed piece of um, uh, fundamental rights protection that has had um, sort of both enemies and supporters in the UK, much of which I think is misunderstood. But I think perhaps the best way of describing it is um, it is a modern, fluid set of rights protections that is not only much more up-to-date and much more widely encompassing than, for example, the European Convention of Human Rights, which is much more widely known, um, but also has the capacity to change and adapt as times are changing and adapting. So, for example, um, let's take data protection as something that we may not have thought about in any terms, let alone in the terms we now suddenly have to deal with it um, 15 years ago. And what the Charter does is sets out broad parameters of protection which can be adapted over time to meet the needs of a changing, complex, technical society. One thing that is important to emphasise with the Charter is that its formation was slightly unusual. Um, It was drafted not just with representatives of national governments, but also with representatives of national parliaments, as well as the European parliaments. And it was very much inputted from across um, uh, the membership of the EU. And it tries to do something unusual. So in contrast to various other treaties, um, it covers 
um, civil and political rights, sometimes called first generation rights, but it also tries to cover socioeconomic rights and social rights. So what it tries to do is provide effectively a modern fluid framework that protects fundamental rights. And I mean, this is something quite different and it brings something quite unique to our table because not only do we not have a written constitution in the UK, but we also, although we are um, bound for now to the European Convention of Human Rights, the European Convention of Human Rights has a different scope. And, and so, and the European Convention doesn't have social rights or social economic rights in any real way, does it? No. Um, you know, the closest you could maybe get to that is um, Article 14, which is the non-discrimination right, but it's not a freestanding right. And so it sits in conjunction with all of the civil and political rights, so the right to a fair trial, the right to privacy. And these are rights that are only enforceable against the state or a private individual acting in the capacity of the state. Yeah. And, and just to explain what that means, that means that you there isn't you can't just say i'm being discriminated against and that's it you have no. to say i'm receiving worse treatment in terms of a particular right so i'm getting le a less fair trial or i'm being detained because of some characteristic exactly of, of of my own exactly and what the charter has for example talking about equality is this freestanding right to equality which uh, we otherwise don't have. We don't have a constitutional provision of equality. So although it's not been used in wide terms yet, we have to remember these are early years post the formation and ratification of a treaty. Um, and so really one has to wait to see how it develops. But we are taking away this freestanding, effectively constitutional right to equality. Um, and it's not just that right. I mean, there are a number of other rights within the Charter that are innovative, but also representative of 21st century Britain and the EU and modern democracies. So um, it, for example, seeks to protect children's rights very explicitly. It seeks to protect the rights of elderly people, disabled people. It's also the only freestanding um, protection um, uh, or right to non-discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation in, in international um, treaties. So because because sexual orientation doesn't appear in in the wording of either the Universal Declaration exactly. or, or or the or the European Convention exactly. because they're from the 1940s and exactly. 50s. And so you can see just from that example alone why the Charter is said to be this modern, fluid, updated catalogue of rights uh, for the 21st century. And, and just to give a flavour of of what those what the differences are. So and unlike the European Convention, you've got. You've got the, um, Article Thirty-One, a, a right to a fair and fair and just working conditions. You've got Article Twenty-Two, cultural, religious, and linguistic diversity. Um, you've got the right to freedom to choose an occupation and right to engage in work. Um, freedom to integrity of the person. These are all these are all completely fresh yeah. compared to the European Convention. Although you might find those elements of those rights within others, and there's been a bit of creative. Um, work around that by the European Court. You don't. These are quite different. They are quite different. And I mean, one way of looking at that is um, some of the listeners may remember the Google right to be forgotten case, for example, um, your data history and the, your personal records on, on an internet search, for example. So the right to be forgotten is effectively so that your name doesn't keep turning up in a Google search um, in respect of a particular incident or in respect of a particular thing forever into eternity. Like if there's some false information about you exactly. or, or you were... 
acquitted of a crime, but there's a newspaper article exactly. saying you've been accused of the crime. Yeah. You could go to court at now because of that case and say, and, and Google will be forced to, to remove it, to remove that search result in, in all European countries. Yeah. And so what that did, for example, was yes, we already did have the right um, to, to sort of a private family life, for example, under Article 8, against that was against the state. But what that did was it built on those personal privacy family rights, and specifically incorporated the charter right of the protection of personal data. So what you see is, yes, there are elements of all of these rights that exist either in other legislation, or in the convention, but you see it being built on and giving very visible rights, very visible protection to EU citizens. And of course, at the moment, that still includes us. Freedom of the arts and sciences, um, an academic freedom in there under Article 13. This is it's just a much richer document that encompasses more of human life than, than we have in the convention. I think that's right. And I think that uh, I, I, it's not a perfect document. Um, everything, you know, nothing, nothing really is a perfect document. Um, and it has faced its criticisms. And it's faced a lot of controversy in the UK uh, pretty much since its inception. And that controversy has been because famously Britain said to have an opt-out on it. But actually the opt-out isn't really an opt-out. It's really a clarification of, of how it um, is said to exist and how it's said to apply. And really that um, clarification is about um, the codification. It said that the Charter codifies existing rights rather than creates new ones. But as we've just seen from the right to be forgotten case, that's right, but it, it's based on rights that already exist, but it's being used in a way that's suitable for modern democracies in the 21st century. What will happen to the Charter after Brexit? Well, I mean, the Charter has been jettisoned to all intents and purposes by the government. Um, and I have to say the jettisoning feels incredibly ideological. And that's that, that there's there's sort of two consequences of that. One is that the Charter, that we, we now lack those rights and the um, ability to rely on those rights in our own courts. Um, but also uh, it sets, I think, a concerning direction for the future of travel of human rights because the government's response to jettisoning the charter was to produce what they called a right-by-right -right analysis. And this was meant to reassure us that, in fact, we weren't losing any rights by jettisoning the charter. Um, but the reality is that it was a very carefully worded document, which on any careful reading demonstrated that there were very significant gaps in our protection. Um, for example, if you, you take the provisions on children's rights that exist within the Charter, um, whilst some of those provisions appear in our own legal system, um, others of which will force us now to rely on international treaties, which do not form an incorporated part of domestic law. Would it be fair to say that's nowhere near as strong a protection? as the Charter. It doesn't come close to the protection of the Charter. It doesn't provide us with a remedy in our own legal system. Um, and we, we've talked about the ability of the Charter to provide citizens with a homegrown remedy. The courts can strike down legislation um, if it, um, if it uh, is in breach of EU law. Let's just give a few concrete examples about the kinds of concerns of that Brexit gives rise to for future human rights protections? Sure. Well, um, at the time of this recording, um, it's been 
um, suggested, um, and we've not yet seen the text of this, but it seems to have been suggested and confirmed by Liz Truss that the government is seeking to remove the level playing field obligations uh, in the political declaration which Theresa May signed um, before uh, Boris Johnson um, succeeded her. And what are they? And effectively, what that what that meant was that Britain committed to maintaining existing protections um, in socio-economic spheres, such as workers' rights or environmental protections or consumer protections, and it committed to keeping a level playing field with the protections provided by EU law. And the, the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights, they're not EU laws, are they? So they are not EU laws. Um, and one of the fundamental problems, I think, over the Brexit period that we've been talking about is there has often been this conflation between the European Court of Justice, which is the ultimate arbiter of EU law, and the European Court of Human Rights, which is the ultimate arbiter of um, the European Convention of Human Rights, which is... Um, uh, uh, the product of the Council of Europe, which is a very different entity from the EU. And from the European Council, which makes it all And from the European Council, which the, the, confusing. nobody helps themselves no. with their name image. And here. the flags look the same. The flags look the same too. Um, and of course, you have European Parliament in Strasbourg, and you also have the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. The European Court of Justice is in Luxembourg. And what you find is this huge conflation between what's happening. But in fact, in leaving the EU, we are not leaving, we should not be leaving, and we are not leaving the European um, Convention of Human Rights or the Council of Europe yet. One more bit of background. Looking at equalities law, how much of our current equalities law or what pieces of our current equalities law come out of EU standards rather than off, you know, off our own bat? So equality law is one area which has been very heavily modelled and influenced by the EU. Um, one of the um, misrepresentations, perhaps to put it kindly, uh, during the referendum debates was about equal pay. And you heard a lot of people say, well, you know, we had our own equal pay laws, we had our own equality laws, etc. Um, we don't need the EU to preserve our equality laws. But of course, um, the Equal Pay Act was at least in part um, a, a, an attempt at our third entry into uh, what's now the EU. Um, and subsequently, our laws have been modelled and shaped and influenced, not just by the laws passed by um, the EU, but also by the influence and development of the European Court of Justice. So our equality law has been hugely influenced, but I would go a step further than that and say that because we're a country without a written constitution, we don't actually have a constitutional principle of equality. Uh, there are arguments about whether the gap can be filled by what's known as common law, which is the process of developing the law as it goes along. But we don't actually have a constitutional principle of equality. And the Equality Act, which largely knits together all the various provisions of EU law and domestic law on equality, doesn't have constitutional status. So EU law and the principles of equality, which form a cornerstone of it, have had a sort of quasi-constitutional status. Um, and the right to equality is also enshrined within the Charter. 
So once the charter goes, and I know we'll come to talk about that in a moment, once the charter goes, once we leave the EU, we actually lose that protection um, which that semi-constitutional status has given us. And if we think about that idea of constitutional status, I guess that the the paradigm constitutional law would be one which allows the courts to strike down any law which contravened it. Well, that, exactly, which is, you know, when, I, when we were talking about the, the court had the ability to strike down inconsistent domestic legislation because it, it contravened a piece of EU law in the way that in countries with a written constitution, that would also be um, a, a similar a similar principle. And under the Human Rights Act, can a court strike down a piece of primary legislation? No, it, it can't strike down legislation. Um, what it can do is, um, in simple terms, it can effectively recommend to Parliament uh, that they make changes to it, but it can't strike it down. So it's simply not as powerful. And, and, and if Parliament wants to reject those recommendations, does it have the ability to do that? Parliament can do what it likes. Parliament is sovereign. It's so sovereign. Fun- fundamentally, unless something conflicts with EU law, um, the judges here can make a recommendation under the Human Rights Act effectively, but they can't set it aside. And so th- those equalities laws that arose, can you give an example of, of, of one which has come out of EU law and how it would have, how it would have gone through that process? So I think one of the areas of um, equality law that has um, been most influenced by the EU is equal pay. And uh, the right equal pay also gives the right to work, the right to equal pay for work of equal value. Uh, and these principles have been hugely developed through um, through the EU, through the case law of the Court of Justice. Um, another example would be protection um, for carers, for example, through um, concepts known as associative discrimination. So there are a number of areas in which um, in which EU equality law has been supplemented and implemented through the EU. And and equal pay for people who are listening who might have heard about cases and, and not realised they are equal pay cases. These are the cases where people, where large groups of um, often women in a, in a workplace will go to court and say, well, we should have been, we were doing effectively the same work or the same value work as the men in, in a different position and we should have been paid more. And they yes, can, exactly. And they can get back payments. Yes, for- exactly. So caterers or... Um, groups of workers in the NHS and they say well you know we are our work is equivalent to for example something that a a group of manual workers might be doing or gardeners or um, manual porters for example and they look at it and they say you know the courts will look at this and say this group of people have been their pay has been heavily influenced by their gender over the years by the stereotyping of their gender but in fact when you break it down and look at all the component parts of their work their pay is of equal value to for example um, the porters or the gardeners or whatever it might be and that development of equal pay and equal pay for work of equal value um, is in in very large part attributable to the way we've seen developments in the EU. So let's talk about post-Brexit. Now, obviously, there's various different versions of Brexit. And as we record this, we have no idea which we're going to be subjected to. Um, But let's just talk about the essential leaving the EU with a deal. Let's start with with a deal. 
Um, and I suppose we can only talk about the deal which is which was previously negotiated, which was Theresa May's deal. Where would that leave our rights protections and those those kind of examples that we spoke about? Won't those all just stay as UK law and, and will carry on merrily regardless? I think you have to break things down into a couple of different angles. Uh, the first thing is that in terms of leaving with a deal, we are talking about very, very basic infrastructure as part of that deal right now. There still has to be, whether we leave with Theresa May's deal, another deal, or no deal at all, there has to be a negotiation as to the level and type of trade relationship that we will have over the coming years with our neighbours. And in, in some ways, it is that trading relationship deal that will dictate the degree to which we can walk away from some of the commitments that we currently have as a matter of practicality. Um, that you will have heard a lot of talk, for example, of the Singapore on Thames, you know, Britain becoming Singapore on Thames. What does deregulation mean? And um, there have been threats. There were early threats by Theresa May, at least implicitly, and there have been threats um, all the way through this, that Britain may well walk away from regulation on employment, on consumer protection, environmental protections, etc., um, effectively to be able to undercut our partners to try to get better trading deals. Now, if that is the position, if we try to undercut to become this Singapore on terms, then not only does that mean that we're likely less likely to have uh, a decent trading relationship and negotiation with them, uh, but it also means that there are literally no frameworks, no rules by which we, we need to conduct those employment relationships or human rights uh, or socioeconomic rights type of relationships. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is where we're left with withdrawal agreement just as it is now. And effectively, what the Withdrawal Act does, this was the act that was passed last year in Parliament. What that act does is it pushes over most, not all, but most of EU law as it currently is into domestic law on the date of exit. And that law is then subject to amendment either by parliament um, and with or without scrutiny, depending on what we're talking about um, in, a, in, a, in a practical level, um, and also by the Supreme Court. So we could see in front of us many years of litigation about what aspects of EU law we think are no longer relevant to us or we think we want to walk away from, or in fact that Parliament decides to walk away from. And would it be fair to say that the even if on day one of Brexit everything's transferred over as well apart from the charter, the charter. And, we'll, and we'll come back to that. But if every if, for example, maternity leave rights are transferred over that the difference would be that on day two, if a government with a majority decided to change and, and reduce down, you say, well, you only get three months for maternity leave now, there would be no anchor in EU law to prevent them doing that. That's exactly right. I mean, the problem is we lose the safety net. So, you know, let's say we leave on the 31st of October. On the 5th of November or the 1st of December, uh, there is a decision to change um maternity protection or work I think working time direction or to cap 
uh, compensation for discrimination or some of these things that we are constrained by the EU on. If you go to the tribunal, an employment tribunal, for example, now, um, and you say that you've been subjected to um, maternity discrimination, sex discrimination, race discrimination, whatever it may be, and you are successful, the tribunal can award you compensation that is un technically unlimited. In, in, practical, in practical terms, what actually happens is that that compensation is broken down and structured in a particular way. But depending on whether you're a high earner, for example, or the nature of the effect that that discrimination has had on you, that is technically unlimited compensation. Now, members of the Vote Leave project um, even before we got into the referendum, um, wanted to cap discrimination. This was something that was discussed, for example, in reforms proposed in 2012, uh, the so-called Beecroft reforms, which the Cameron government had looked into. Um, capping discrimination was on the agenda then. Um, EU law says you can't do it. But, for example, if on the 2nd of November of this year, if we've left the EU, um, there was a decision that discrimination was going to be capped and that the law would be changed to that effect. Say there a, is a £5,000 or something. Yeah. You, could, you could say no claim is allowed to go above £5,000 or, or, or a, a company with less than 10 employees would be capped at a certain amount and, and you know, et cetera. And, and, and that would be justified as kind of red tape, red tape cutting. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's what, exactly. that's how it's described. Well, most of these reforms are usually described as red tape cutting. Um, the, the practical impact of those sorts of reforms is to remove swathes of rights from people. So, it, And it may end up costing employers less, but ultimately it's the employees who would suffer from that. I think that's right. And I think also uh, it has the potentially damaging side effect that if discrimination is not properly compensated for in the workplace and in and in other scenarios in life too, then it becomes something that's much less important as part of the structural society that we live in. If it becomes easy to pay it off, then we can allow it to go rampant. And and, and that's one of you know one of the justifications for having uncapped discrimination is fundamentally that we recognise discrimination to be an evil in our society and it needs to be appropriately treated as such. And if you're an employer who and you're considering sacking someone while they're on maternity leave and you know that the maximum you end up paying out is five thousand pounds as opposed to a hundred thousand pounds then clearly it may your, well be a no-brainer your, your range of options yeah. would be um quite different exactly i think the point about all of this is to say that what the eu does now is it provides that safety net that we can't go below certain standards so it's important to bear that in mind. It's not a ceiling, it's a safety net. So if we, as an individual member state within the EU, have chosen that we want to provide higher protection, for example, for employees, or better um, hours, or better working hours, or better minimum wages, or whatever it might be, there's nothing to stop us improving on our protections for employees or environmental protections or whatever. What we can't do is cut the basic net and in leaving the EU, what we do is we remove that net entirely. So if the government of the day or parliament of the day, depending on exactly what we're talking about, changes regulations and law, there's nothing anyone can do about it. And, and what about the, the Labour approach? I know it's, it's not completely clear what kind of deal they would want to negotiate, but they have said it would be a workers first deal. Would that, would that reinstate the protections that we lose because of the EU? 
No, I'm afraid I really struggle with this Labour approach to a work, you know, a workers first, jobs first Brexit. Um, for all the reasons that I've just described, there's no question that workers' rights are better protected as part of the EU. So, I mean, we, we don't know what deal Labour are planning to um, uh, strike with the EU and whether that's even achievable. But even if that deal pledges to replicate um, the laws that we currently have and, and not regress from them or even to keep up with them as those laws change it's difficult to see how that will work in practice and 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 fundamentally um if those laws don't have a domestic basis there aren't remedies for breaking those laws that we will have in domestic courts so it's all very well to say we'll try to keep up with it and that's certainly better than nothing but if you're talking about putting workers first i think there's got to be very little doubt that workers are better protected as part of the eu so that's so we've spoken about employment rights, which I think are probably the most tangible um, of the for, for many people, um, the most tangible way of understanding what might be at risk. Data rights is is that newer and more, you know, and probably less well understood area of rights protection. Um, and particularly, we've just had this the the general data protection regulation, sure. the GDPR, which caused chaos, chaos, yeah, and, and, and caused every business and organization in the UK and website had to comply with it um, by last summer. Now, that is quite a radical, you know, in terms of rights protection, mm. it's quite a radical departure from what has come before it. Mm. And that's something presumably we'd lose as well or potentially lose at, at Brexit. Ultimately, it depends how much of the current law that has already been transcribed and placed into a domestic footing is changed in the future. Um, and it is possible, it hasn't yet happened, but it is possible for the trading relationship and any trade deal that is, is struck in the coming years to agree non-regression clauses on all kinds of things, including data protection. So that means you don't regress from the current Law. You don't regress from the from the from the current law, and there may be a commitment to pitch our laws at the same level as those that alter and grow and develop in the EU. Now that's really problematic because the laws in the EU may develop in a particular way without British input. And what's happened over the last forty-five years is that our input as British lawyers. Um, as British judges and um, a, 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 as British input more generally into the EU has been to develop laws in a way that also works with our society and economy. And it's going to be difficult to pledge to keep harmony with laws that develop when we've had no input into them at all. So we actually simply don't know what those future laws will look like and whether we're going to keep keep pace with them or not. Would, wouldn't I mean, isn't the argument against that kind of arrangement that we end up with all of the things people say they don't like about the EU, the kind of laws imposed from outside. Exactly. But, we're, but we, can, we can't even impact on the laws. All we can do is, we're, we're expression rule takers, but um, we can't um, input or challenge them in the courts. I mean, what, what I, I, I can understand how that might be better for the individual who at least has the protections, yeah. but it seems politically unsustainable. It does seem politically unsustainable, which is why I think that those sorts of arguments are 
unworkable and unlikely at the, in, in, in real time to see the light of day. What that means for people in Britain is that we actually have no way of knowing that our citizens will have the same level of protection as the French or the Spanish or the Belgians and all sorts of things. So to take an example of developing laws and regulations on AI, for example, you know, the tech sector is likely to be facing regulation. It is likely to be facing regulation in terms of human rights principles, equality principles, privacy principles. And the EU is already looking at ways in which this can be done. Does Britain post-Brexit decide to sign up to those or does it not? Does it decide to undercut principles for the benefit of, say, the tech sector or the economy, but to the detriment of individuals? And you know, we, we suddenly face a very different trade-off as citizens of post-Brexit Britain than as citizens of a united continent. And, and, won't, and that will very much depend on which government is negotiating the final trade deal with the EU and also the deals with, well, I guess, particularly United, the United States. And that's, and that's absolutely right. But I, and there is also a practical reality, as we've already discussed to this. How much protection can we really commit ourselves to that it has a basis in law? You know, we can, we can commit to high principles, something that happens in other trade treaties, for example. But what are the remedies for breaches of those in real terms in our courts? And those are very real problems that have not really begun to find their way around the negotiations tables. And, and we might well be very happy to, I mean, you, you see Google and Facebook and other big tech companies are already headquartering in London and building gigantic new buildings. Presumably, it would be in if we want to attract more of those kind of companies. It might be in our interest to have low a, regulation, have a light, a light touch exactly. regulation. Exactly. Singapore on the Thames. Singapore on the Thames. And this is the problem. So when you talk about rights post Brexit, it's incredibly misleading to talk about what the situation might look like on the first of November, twenty nineteen, to what the situation might look like on the first of November, twenty twenty one or 2025 or 2030, when you've had a succession of different kinds of governments and each government comes along and says, well, actually, like governments do, and says, well, we're going to either cut red tape or we're going to increase protections. And we end up in this sort of you know, undulating right situation as opposed to a stable one. Uh, I think that's, that's the fundamental problem with losing this safety net is that there is no bottom. There is no bottom rung to this. We could fly down and we could fly up and rights are easily thrown around in manifestos as, you know, a sort of, you know, a, um, a tidbit to the electorate for now that can be taken away or that might, in fact, not have a remedy in practice. And I think that's the problem is that our, our, our rights protection becomes fluid. Of course, we retain the European Convention on Human Rights. Of course, we still have that um, up until such time that maybe we don't. But we, we do still have that. But those rights, those rights are much more limited uh, than the, the sort of underlying socio-economic protections, quasi-constitutional protections that we have with the EU, partly because they only relate to state abuse of rights or state violation of rights. Whereas, for example, the charter or the or, or general EU law rights, say for equality or say for consumer protections, etc., apply to all of us. So 
we can all go to the courts to say these are our rights under EU law, um, even if, for example, it's against our private employer. But we can only go to the courts to look to protect our rights under the European Convention of Human Rights if, if there has been a state abuse or a private individual acting on behalf of the state. So it sort of curtails and chops our rights in a way that we've not been used to. Which would mean that effectively there wasn't a free trade zone and a kind of Singapore on Thames on the borders of the EU. And the reality is that most free trade agreements have some level of level playing field obligations, but we now seem to be in a situation where deregulation appears to be the purpose of this move. Now, what does that mean in real terms? And some of you might remember in the course of the referendum period, there were lots of suggestions about what de deregulation might actually mean. And you may recall some suggestions that small businesses, for example, should be exempt from um, maternity protections or disability protections. Now, let's just see what that means in real terms and what leaving the EU actually brings to that table. So a lot of people won't know, but it was in fact through the mechanics of EU law, that pregnancy discrimination was first held to be an act of sex discrimination. Um, that now has um, a very solid basis in EU law. Now, you might think it's very unlikely that a future government in Britain would want to remove those sorts of protections. But in a situation where we have removed all level playing field obligations, uh, and even if we haven't, um, there might be suggestions, for example, that we're entitled to limit the amount of protection. So, for example, a company under 20 people or 50 people or even 100 people may not be compelled to um, offer a woman who's gone off on maternity leave the same job when she returns. And without the safety net of the EU, there is nothing to prevent um, a government uh, passing a law in Parliament, particularly a majority government, um, which has um, the numbers on its side to pass this legislation, to change the law and remove that sort of protection. And, and we might end up with a kind of ping pong situation where every five years or 10 years, those protections are either taken away or put back in, depending on which government is, which government's in place, whether it's Labour or Tory or Brexit Party or Lib Dems or, or whatever. But we wouldn't have the steady protection that we've had for the last 40 years or so. Yes, that's exactly right. And what you can see is uh, workers' rights, equality rights, environmental rights being cast around as a sort of political football to see either who can be the toughest or who claims to be the party behind business or who claims to be the party behind workers. And who's, who will suffer from that? It's ordinary people who have come to rely on these rights as an everyday part of their entitlement. Can, can we talk briefly about environmental rights? Yeah, um, I, I mean, environmental rights um, in Britain, as across the EU, have been very, very broadly um, created in large measure by the EU. I think you will know from um, various pieces of litigation that have been running that the British government has already been found in breach of various of its environmental obligations. And that's within the confines of the EU. The huge concern about environmental protections going forward is that if we're already talking about deregulation because we, you know, we need to be competitive, it's said, in, in, on a global trading, um, in a global trading market, then 
What does that mean for keeping up with our neighbours on environmental protections? What does that mean for our commitment towards international treaties in environmental protections? Where does that leave us in Britain? Yeah, I mean, certainly in public law, the environmental protections, such as the Aarhus protections, um, have had huge influence because it's because of EU law. It has to be, it's been made much easier to bring environmental claims in the courts to, you know, say that if there's a particular polluter or a law which is break, which is breaking clean air regulations. And it's it's been a huge, made it's made a huge difference. But that would all just disappear overnight. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two points. One is that the EU has been a huge driver of uh, uh, environmental protections. Of the standards that, that, uh, that, that are legally enforceable. Exactly, yeah. setting the legally enforceable standards. And secondly, it's provided a context within which the British government simply has to comply. Once we leave the EU, potentially, particularly if we um, decommit to a level playing field, both of those have gone. And, uh, uh, and really, we're relying on the goodwill of the government to and the government of the day to continue to um, peg us to whatever protections are developed in a climate crisis going forward. Can we talk about disability rights and what the effect of leaving the EU would potentially have on our disability rights, particularly at work? Disability rights, again, are another area where there's been a huge impact of EU law. Um, and whilst it's true that we have the Disability Discrimination Act in 1995 and that there is um, substantial um, codification of disability rights within the Equality Act, that doesn't cover everything. And um, disability rights organisations are really very concerned about what the future outside the EU looks like, not just in terms of rights protection, but in terms of the wider issues surrounding disability um, level playing fields and uh, protection of rights, protection of funding within the EU. So um, disability employment rights are protected within the Equality Act, but there's a whole host of other EU um, legislation which seeks to protect uh, and promote disability rights within the, the member states. So, for example, there are the air passenger rights regulations, which mean that um, people with disabilities um, are required to be provided assistance when they travel by plane. There are other regulations um, which require the packaging, for example, of medicine products um, to be labelled in Braille. Um, there are all sorts of discussions about... Um, accessibility and there are discussions about an accessibility act um, or a, a piece of legislation relating to accessibility within the EU. When we leave, particularly if there's no level playing field obligations, there is no, there is no need for us to adopt the continuing changes um, and improvements for disabled people's lives. And there are a couple of other consequences which relate to that. One is that um, uh, there is a huge amount of funding for disability rights organisations which comes from within the EU. And um, it's really not clear at this juncture in time how or whether any of that will be protected. So we were talking earlier about treaties, international treaties, and um, the EU has been incredibly innovative with this specific treaty called the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and it's actually incorporated that treaty so that it applies to us now and we can rely on it in our domestic courts as part of our own law, and in fact, many of us do use the convention in that way. Now, once we leave the EU, um, it's not clear what 
what the status of that treaty will be and how we use it. And that treaty has been a very significant advancement of how disability is understood and, um, and developed in our legal process. People listening to this might think, be thinking to themselves, well, no government's going to want to reduce dis- disability rights. And isn't this all just a sort of scare, um, a, a, a project fear kind of approach? And, and one thing that, that occurred to me, in particular when we were talking about environmental rights, is these rights are quite often costly um, from, a, from a state perspective. So it, taking the example of um, accessibility, disability accessibility, if you're going to have to change access to every train station or every tube station or every bus you know that is there is a cost to that and it is a, and, and it's that kind of cost that might prevent a local government as in a, a local state government from actually implementing that kind of protection and and it's the same with environmental protections everybody talk everybody wants environmental protections but when you actually get to the brass tax of the cost sometimes it takes an international body to say no actually this is a bigger issue than state budgets, or it's, at least it's it's worth it, and and it seems to me that that's the, the ultimately the way that, that that these rights will be chipped away at because of um, you know, this is just red tape on businesses, it's holding us back, it's costing local councils too much, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, I think that's right, and I, I I'm just reading out in front of me a tweet from Liz Truss um, this morning. Um, uh, Liz Truss, of course, is the um, uh, Trade Secretary, uh, and she says that um, in respect of this um, uh, suggestion that Britain will um, drop its level playing field standards, she says it's vital for giving us the freedom and flexibility to strike new deals and become more competitive. What you need to do is disentangle what that really means. How do we become more competitive? Whether or not it's true in respect of the question of trade deals is another matter. But what she means, what that means by becoming more competitive is that actually there's less what they call red tape. There are less obligations, financial and otherwise. And it's, in a sense, a sort of break-free mould. And the the problem that we face, um, particularly in a no-deal Brexit... Um, but potentially could face in any event, is that if uh, Britain is in something of a free fall, and we don't know what will happen, but if there's economic consequences to Brexit, and most suggestions are that there will be, then that's the context and the backdrop within which governments can say, look, we just can't afford this now. We can't afford for every woman to go back and have the right to go back to her work because businesses can't afford it. We can't afford for businesses to have to provide adaptations for disabled employees, for example. We can't afford to meet environmental obligations for another 40 years, for example. And so this is not about project fear. This is about the reality of losing a safety net, which is a very significant safety net. Should we talk about no deal Brexit? Um, because and as we record this a few weeks away from the 31st of October, supposed deadline, no deal Brexit is a real, it's, a, it's, it's really a, a real potential event. Now, let's talk about this, the short term and the medium term. So in the short term, assuming that there is some sort of economic, social breakdown of some kind at some level, that will clearly have an impact on, on rights on a, on a basic level. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that um, there is um, concern for supply chains of all kinds. So whether that's food, whether that's medicine, and some of these will have um, or, or, or may have, I should say, the potential to seriously impact life and health. Um, and uh, that there is therefore um, at least the beginnings of the rights framework being engaged. You can see easily how the rights framework might be engaged. The problem is the legal rights framework in that context is very little assistance because um, the reality is if people are significantly affected by lack of food or a lack of medicine, the elderly, for example, or people who are very vulnerable, then to be able to come to the courts later on to claim under the Human Rights Act that, that, that the government has failed in its obligations to protect life, to preserve the basic infrastructure of the state which, um, which, with which it is charged, it, it won't prevent the problem from taking place in the first place. It won't prevent the loss from taking place in the first place. So there are real issues with substantive, fundamental human rights being challenged. But is the legal framework enough? The answer is probably no. And the in the medium term, if there's no deal, you lose all the protections and all of the rights that you get through the EU bar none. And, um, and, and I mean, that may be the case even with a deal, because at the moment we're talking about um, disconnecting with level, level playing field obligations. But, but certainly if there's no deal, the implications on free fall are clearly there for everybody to see. I think one other thing I really want to mention is that the implications of a no deal Brexit um, for EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU is really extreme because at the point at which we're recording this, there is still no um, deal set out in respect of protection. And whilst the settled status scheme um, has been rolled out by the Home Office... There what, are, what is the settled status scheme? Uh, effectively, this is a scheme by which um, EU citizens who are already in the UK have to register um, to be lawful. But if they don't register or if they're not permitted to register either because of erroneous um, uh, handling at the Home Office or because there's a problem somewhere down the track, then technically they will be here unlawfully. So in the wake of the Windrush scandal, we um, we know the real potential for human life to be disrupted, for family lives to be disrupted. Uh, and there is a very significant risk of all of that for um, citizens who in good faith moved here or moved across the EU member states to live, to work, to set up their lives. And that will be disrupted potentially in some three and a half weeks time. And even if we have a deal, it seems highly unlikely that the free, the right to free movement, which is at the centre of, of the EU treaties, you know, the, the right to go and live and work, claim social security, marry, do all the basic things that a citizen can do in any part of the EU um, without having to get a special visa um, or, or, or get a sort of limited period um, within which you can do it. That, that right will just probably go. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's, like, it's very, very likely to vanish overnight. And it's, it's an extraordinary feature of the last three and a half years that there has been so little attention paid on what that means for us as UK citizens 
um, as well as for EU citizens, because the focus has been uh, very much on, well, you know, we're going to close our borders. We had Priti Patel saying a few days ago at the Conservative conference that free movement will end for all. But what hasn't been explained is what that means for British people too. It means that we also lose the rights that many of us have grown up with our entire life to be able to go and study and live and work abroad without red tape, without limitations placed upon us. It's an extraordinary feat of um, creativity amongst a, uh, in a continent. And we're all set to lose that in three and a half weeks. Post-Brexit, there will still be the, the issue of the Human Rights Act and lo potentially losing that. And how will that double blow impact on our rights potentially? I think it's important to say that we still have the Human Rights Act as firmly entrenched in our law. And I think there will be a very strong resistance to any move to cut away from that in the European Convention on Human Rights. Having said that, there have been murmurings on the right-wing fringe of the Conservative Party for many, many years. It's nothing new that many people want to look again at our human rights protections. If we end up in the position where we have a government that is cutting loose of all regulatory ties, including all human rights ties, it leaves us in a really, really vulnerable and dangerous position. I hope we don't come to that. But we are in a position where what we thought was our everyday convention, what we thought was our everyday set of rights is endangered. And you really don't know what you've got until it's gone. On that um, cheery note, <laughs> thank you very much for coming along, um, Shona Jolly QC, and really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And hopefully our worst fears will not come true, but in today's day and age, who knows? Thank you very much, Adam. So thanks so much to Shona Jolly QC. Um, I thought that was a really excellent discussion. As always, you can contact the podcast at adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. You can support us via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. Um, this is very much a new project. We still need support to make it sustainable. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, which is going out completely for free for everybody, please consider giving $5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if 100 people give $5 a month, that will cover the basic costs for two episodes a month, one every fortnight. Um, the Better Human podcast is very kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And if you're interested in studying law, visit Goldsmiths for its open day on Wednesday the 6th of November 2019, where you can meet their law academics and find out more about studying their law programmes. Thanks very much. This has been the Better Human podcast. I'm Adam Wagner. See you next time.